At one point during his ministry, Jesus returned to his hometown. And some people found out that he was there. And so they brought to him someone who had been paralyzed. And they brought this man to Jesus. And Jesus goes to him and he says, don't worry, your sins have been forgiven. And some of the religious leaders that followed Jesus around heard this, and they witnessed this take place, and they said, this man is blaspheming. And Jesus heard them, and as always, he knew it was on their hearts. And he says, why don't you tell me which one of these two things is easier? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to tell him to get up and walk. And he goes to this man who had been paralyzed, and he says, get up and walk, take your mat, and go home. And that's exactly what happened. And the people were in awe and astonished. Because in their midst, they had witnessed two incredible, improbable, and really impossible things happening. This man who was injured beyond repair was able to get up and walk away. And also he left knowing that he stood right before God and that his sins had been forgiven. When it comes to following Jesus and practicing the Christian faith, The Bible calls us to believe some incredible things. We're called to believe that there is a God who is so infinitely big that he is large enough to hold the entire universe in the palm of his hands that he could speak it into existence, but also that he is so kind and compassionate that he loves each and every part of his creation intimately and accessibly. We're also told to believe that even though we as people have sinned and fallen short of God's God's glory and messed up this wonderful and beautiful creation that he made, that he loved us so much that he was willing to become one of us for us. That he was willing to take on human form and step into time and space to do for us what we couldn't do and to bring us salvation through his death and through his resurrection. And maybe the two most incredible things that we're called to believe in Scripture is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that anyone who puts their faith in Christ can receive redemption, that just like that man before Jesus, that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be made new, and that God would no longer see us for all of our brokennesses and all of our weaknesses, but he would see us as his sons and daughters, but also that we have that same promise of resurrection. That one day, even after we breathe our last, that for anyone who is in Christ, that we are called to this eternal life and that one day God will restore and redeem every part of who we are. And with claims like this, doubt from within is to be expected and doubters from around are to be expected. But as we're told in Scripture and as we see this historical testimony that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, we can have an assurance of our faith and hold on to our faith and our hope and our reality of resurrection. And so if we do believe in this incredible thing that Scripture is teaching us, then what does that mean? What does that mean for us now and what does that mean for us for eternity? How does this idea of resurrection, both Christ's bodily resurrection and the resurrection of believers, how does that change our present and our eternity for those who follow after Jesus? What is the reality of our resurrection? Well, that's what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 20. 
And we're going to be in the same passage that we were in last week as we looked at the introduction where these Sadducees came up to Jesus and challenged him on the resurrection of the dead. And now we're going to look today specifically at the response of Christ as he teaches us who we are in light of his resurrection as we await our own. And so from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40, this is the word of God. It says, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, that man must take the widow and raise up the offspring of his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons and daughters of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for its power. God, we thank you for even the things that it calls us to believe that are incredible and extraordinary and seemingly impossible, but we know that nothing is impossible through you. And so, God, as we think about this incredible truth, That Christ not only died on that Good Friday, but that he three days later rose again and walked out of the tomb, defeating death, giving victory to all those who would believe in him. And he shares that resurrection with each and every one of us, first spiritually at salvation, but also one day, completely and totally, as we are made new, body, soul, and spirit. And so, Father, first and foremost, I pray that you help us to believe in the resurrection, to really genuinely believe in the resurrection. That you would help us to know what it means, that that is our hope and our assurance in Christ. And that, God, then you would teach us how to live like people who are awaiting resurrection. And so we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I want to look today at three things that Jesus teaches us about followers of Christ. Things that change about who we are because of the fact that we believe that if we trust in Jesus and if we repent of our sins, then we are on this pathway towards resurrection. And the first thing that Jesus teaches us about followers of Christ awaiting resurrection is that they are made worthy. They're made worthy. Listen to this in verse 34 and 35. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Those considered worthy. 
Now, remember how Luke described the Sadducees last week. They were summarized by this one simple phrase, those who deny the resurrection. And now, as Luke transitions to those who follow after Jesus, he summarizes their identity by calling them those considered worthy. And what a beautiful phrase that is to wear. To be able to be called someone that God considers worthy. But when we really stop to think about it, it's a little bit of a horrifying sentiment as well. Because what do we have to do to be considered worthy by God? What things do we have to put into place? What hoops do we have to jump through so that God would love us enough to consider us worthy? And we try to fill in that blank with all sorts of things. Maybe if I go to church enough, or if I give enough, or if I do enough, or if I serve enough, maybe if I say all the right things or don't say any of the wrong things. Maybe if I avoid all the things that I think are bad and load up my scale with all the things that I think are good, then maybe if I do enough stuff, then God will look at me and he'll say, you know what? You've passed the test and you can be considered worthy. But as we know, Scripture teaches us that no amount of that stuff can solve the problem. The Bible says that as our sin is so heavy because of all that it has done to us and all that it's done to creation, our sin is so heavy that we can't pile enough good stuff on the other side of the scale to even equal it out, much less be able to cause the scale to tip. But the good news in that is that while we can't do enough to make ourselves worthy, the gospel can While we can't do enough to tip the scales, Jesus did. Because the Bible says that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, while we were dead weight because of our sins, God, being rich in his mercy with the great love that he has loved us with, gave Christ so that we could be made alive, so that we could be made worthy. Jesus did everything for us that we couldn't do so that we didn't have to do anything at all to be made worthy. And that is the good news of the gospel. And as Lydia led us in our confession of sin, the reason we do that week after week is because we sometimes do need the reminder that all of us have messed up. All of us have fallen short. But we also need the assurance that in Christ it doesn't matter. Because his goodness is bigger than our badness. His grace is bigger than our sin. And so we don't have to spin our wheels to try to earn God's approval. He gives it to us freely as a gift through Christ. It's not cheap grace. It's not inexpensive grace. It is completely and totally free to anyone who would take a hold of that. You don't have to do anything but follow after Jesus and let him do the hard part for us. And we're told here by Jesus himself that anyone who does that, anyone who trusts in Christ and his work and his salvation, we are made worthy by God. That he looks at us and he says, even though you're broken, even though you've fallen short, even though you've messed up, you are good enough for eternity. You are good enough for me. And he does that by declaration, just telling us that that's who we are. I was talking to someone, I know I've said this before, about how difficult it is to name a human being when you get that opportunity. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of weight. And I was discussing that. But there's a weird thing to it, too. Our children are now known by the names that we've given them by everyone just because we said so. We could have named them anything. 
And there were times when some really awesome and funny things went through my mind, but Stephanie wouldn't let me do it, and so they've got normal names, but we could have named them anything, and if we would have made that declaration over them, they could have been chocolate bar and gumdrop for the rest of their lives, and that's what people would have called them. And that's exactly what happens for us when we put our faith in Christ. God gives us a new name. And he declares us to be worthy. And that is how we are known, not just by everyone, but that is how we are known by God for all of eternity. And there is nothing more amazing and more incredible than that. As we talk about resurrection, we're reminded that salvation, this gift of being made worthy, was inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus. He's called the first fruits of new creation, that he was the first one to conquer death once and for all and to win that victory over death. And so it was through his resurrection that salvation was able to enter the world. And then for each and every one of us who trust in Christ, salvation is initiated by another resurrection. Because Paul tells us that we are dead spiritually because of our sins and trespasses. But when we trust in Christ, we are made alive spiritually. And because of that, we inherit eternal life. And that spirit that lives within us will never die. But we're also reminded here that not only do we receive that initial resurrection spiritually, but we have been made worthy for a final resurrection. Because this flesh and, and blood and bones, all these things that, that fail us, all these things that fall apart, all these things that are tainted and broken because of sin, we have a promise in Scripture that one day God will not only keep our spirits alive for all of eternity, but he will make our bodies new and we will be with him in the fullness and glory that we were designed and created to be forever. And we are worthy of that because God has told us we are. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, then that is what we call the gospel, the good news. That if we follow after Jesus, if we believe this incredible claim that Christ died for us and was raised again so that he could forgive us our sins and give us an eternal life, then that can be your hope and your identity as well. And so please don't leave here this morning without talking with me or one of our other leaders about what it means to follow after Jesus and to be saved by God's grace. So that you too can wear that title that we're given when we follow after Christ, that we are worthy of God's affection and God's eternity. Then he continues. And the next thing that he says about these children of the resurrection, about people who have been saved by grace, is that they cannot die anymore. So we're made worthy by Christ, and then we cannot die anymore. Now, there are certain things that are hard to imagine. And you can think of some things maybe that you've thought about before that you can't really wrap your mind around, that you can't really understand, that we know might be a reality, but it's hard to know how that could happen. I don't know how people eat sweet pickles. My wife does. It's gross. It takes everything good about a pickle and takes it away and replaces it with a disgusting, just horrible version of what a pickle could be. And so I can't wrap my mind around or understand how anyone would eat such an abomination. And so maybe you have things like that, too that you know are realities, but they're hard to understand. And I think maybe the chief of those things, if you've ever really tried to think about it, from a spiritual perspective or not, is the idea of eternity. 
Because everything that we do is set around some sort of temporal construct, right? This morning, I have to set a lot of alarms. I don't know if your phone looks like mine, but there are 23 alarms set for various occasions. And I'll usually have at least six set every day because Stephanie sleeps very deeply and she doesn't hear any of them. And so I know I can set as many as I need to get me out of bed whenever I need to get out of bed. And so everything has a timer. And we know we're supposed to be certain places for certain things, and everything has a timeline. If I start drifting off much past my normal allotted time here, you'll start to look at your watch, and your stomach will start to rumble a little bit, because we know our bodies are programmed, our lives are programmed around things start and things finish. And so the thought of eternity is like ordering a soft-serve ice cream and shoving the whole thing in your mouth and swallowing it in one gulp, and then you get that horrific headache that starts in the back of your throat and moves all the way through your face. If you think about eternity long enough, it will do that to you. Because the thought of something existing forever is mind-numbing. But then if we think about it in reverse, and the fact that something has always been here, that's even more difficult to understand. To think about God, in particular, as an uncreated creator, that he has no parents, that he has no creator, that he has always been and always will be, is a really difficult thing to wrap our minds around. And in the Christian life, there are several words that can be easy to take for granted, especially if you've grown up in or around church or even just in the American South where some of these things are just spoken and whispered all around. Words like grace, when we talk about being made worthy, It doesn't matter how often we think about God's grace being free, there's always something in our minds that thinks that we have to earn it or we have to work for it. Words like forgiven. When we think about the fact that if we trust in Christ, that everything that we have ever done or will ever done has been forgiven by God and wiped clean, it can be really difficult to wrap our minds around that because we know it's there. And we experience it and we can't imagine that God would just pay that debt in our place. And so we might use words like grace and forgiven, but sometimes we don't really wrap our minds around and put into practice what they mean. And one of those words that we do that with is forever or eternity. And our difficulty to understand that probably contributes a lot in not taking it seriously. And I don't mean that we are flippant about forever, but I don't know that we give forever the kind of thought that we really should. And when we read words like John saying that anyone who believes in Christ will have eternal life, we think about that as a nice sentiment. But I wonder how often we really sit and try to understand what that means, that by following after Jesus, we gain and inherit eternal life. See, for believers in Christ, Forever is a reality that we need to take very seriously. And in verse 35 and 36, Jesus says, But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. You see, Jesus tells us here that the hope of the resurrection is that even though we may taste death once, we may breathe our last breath and our bodies may fall dead, In Christ, we have a hope that goes beyond that last breath. You see, Paul tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ because our spirits have been made alive inside of us. And so the minute we close our eyes in death, Paul gives us an assurance that we will open our eyes in the presence of Christ and we will be with him for all of eternity. But we also have this promise in Revelation 20 and 21 that that's not the end of the story. 
that one day God is going to bring heaven to earth and that he's going to make all things new, including our physical bodies, and tied into this hope of eternal life is the reminder that matter matters to God and that he has a plan for this world and he has a plan for us as individuals, as bodies, but it will last for all of eternity. And so Jesus says that one day we may breathe our last, but our spirits will never die. And then one day we will be restored totally and completely body, soul, and spirit. And that will be an eternal situation. And we will never die again. You see, Scripture demands that we understand that we were not created to be temporal that we were made for eternity. And here Christ gives us that assurance, the one that John calls the Word of God, the Word incarnate. Jesus, God in human form, is speaking out truth. And he says that if you follow after me, after that resurrection, you will never die again, and you will be with me for all of eternity. Because the gospel hope is that the last enemy, The enemy who is undefeated for all time, the enemy of death, has been defeated once and for all and has been overcome by our victorious king. And that victory now belongs to anyone who puts their faith in Christ. And so when Jesus says they cannot die anymore, he is speaking to followers of Christ and he is expecting us to take claim of that and to believe that and to recognize that when he says they cannot die anymore, that this is our hope and this is our assurance and this is our eternity. This is our reality. And so we need to ask ourselves the serious question, do I believe in forever? But we'll come back to that question in a moment. Because Jesus says that when we follow after him, because of the resurrection, we are made worthy. We cannot die anymore. And then he tells us that we have a new identity. Now, when death comes for someone close to us, it's never easy to understand. It's never easy to grasp. Because even if we feel like we're well prepared, there's something difficult about this thing that happens that we don't fully know or understand. And so we construct myths and terms that help us to cope with what death actually is. And one of the things that's said a lot when someone dies, and if you have said this before, or if you've heard this said before, if you have thought this before, please do not take this as me taking it lightly or flippantly, but just gently directing us back to what scripture teaches us. You hear phrases like, oh, heaven gained a new angel. But the reality is, when someone dies, based on what Scripture teaches us, we don't become angels. But our identity does change. See, we've talked about how God makes us worthy and speaks that and declares that over our lives. And he changes us from being sinners, how we're identified without Christ that we are sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. And when we trust in Christ and follow after him, our identity changes from being sinners to saints. And the phrase that we like to use, and it's it's such a profound statement, that we are sinners saved by grace. And that's a title that we can wear boldly and that we can wear proudly, but it's a title that one day we'll be able to lay down as well. Because Paul tells us right now there's a conflict inside of us. 
That we have two natures warring against each other. The nature that lives inside of us because of our sin and our brokenness that wants to do things that glorify ourselves and pulls us away from Christ. And the nature that God has given us through Jesus that shapes us to follow after him. And those two things fight within us. And so we are indeed sinners saved by grace. But there will be a day when there is no longer any division within us. When we're told that that stain of sin will be wiped away once and for all, and we will be completely perfected by the God who makes all things new. And so we won't be angels, but John, or excuse me, Jesus says here that we will be like the angels. We will be equal to the angels. He says, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God and being sons and daughters of the resurrection. See, we will pass once and for all from being sinners in darkness to being perfected sons and daughters of God. I've known several people who have gone through the process to adopt a child and that beautiful Christ-like thing. And there's a lot of things that have to happen. And I have a friend who recently went through this in, in kind of a whirlwind situation. And so they were adopting this child that was born to a very difficult circumstance and needed to take immediate custody. And so they took the child in and started immediately loving that child like their own. But then they had to go through all the process of filing the paperwork and getting everything approved and going through the interviews and all the things that have to happen. And then finally, after all of that, the paperwork was approved. And for all intents and purposes, they were the parents now of this child. But they still had to wait a couple weeks for a court date. And that court date would then take all the paperwork and all the time and all the interviews and all the things that have been approved, and that judge would be able to look over all of that and then once and for all validate that this is now completely and totally legal and seal it with their authority. And that's what happens for us. There's a reason why the New Testament uses the language of adoption to talk about what God does for us when he brings us into his family. Jesus says they are sons of God, being sons and daughters of the resurrection. And so what happens at salvation when we follow after Jesus is that God adopts us into his family. He calls us his sons and daughters. Paul says that we go from children of wrath to children of God. And so he adopts us into his family, and we belong to him, we belong to Christ, and then at this resurrection, he will seal it once and for all with his authority, and that will be our identity for all time, that we are the sons and daughters of God. And he calls us children of God through this resurrection into a life without end. And Jesus is making it very clear. That this isn't some high spiritual concept full of logical gymnastics like the Sadducees wanted it to be. But this is about a real physical resurrection and a real spiritual adoption that will be given to anyone who has been saved by Jesus. And they will truly never pass away, never again to be corrupted by sickness, sin, or death. Holy and blameless children of God equal to angels for all eternity and for all time. And we're told that this is what it looks like in Revelation chapter 22. Excuse me, chapter 21. It says, And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
and he will be with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This idea that they are unified now once and for all. Verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things had passed away. And so again, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we believe it? That very passage is going to be our confession of faith in just a moment where we're going to say these words out loud. And before we say them out loud, we better ask ourselves, do we really believe this? But we can ask our lives to find out. Because once we recognize these things, that God has made us worthy and that we have this promise that we cannot die anymore and we have this new identity and the truthfulness and the reality of the resurrection, then we have to consult our lives to see if we really actually believe it. I love old TV, 40s, 50s, 60s television. I grew up on it. I was raised in it, and I love it. And I loved the Dick Van Dyke show. And not too long ago, I listened to an interview with Dick Van Dyke, who I believe is in his 90s now, and also apparently wakes up every morning and immediately starts singing songs and dancing around his house, which I'm 33, and I don't believe there's been a single moment in my 33 years of existence where the first thing I do when I wake up is sing a song and do a little dance, but apparently that is how Dick Van Dyke wakes up every single morning. And this interview was asking Mr. Van Dyke how you do that. How have you aged so well? How have you aged so gracefully? Could you give any advice to people who want to get into their 90s and be able to live the way that you're living? And he thought for a moment, And he said, never walk down the stairs sideways. He says, because when you start walking down the stairs sideways one step at a time, then you've basically committed to the fact that you've gotten old, and it's all downhill from there. Now, I don't know if there's any truth or veracity to that at all. There's probably not. But I do think that there is some spiritual truth in that. Because I wonder how many of us walk down the stairs sideways spiritually. I wonder how many of us live like we're dying. One of the reasons why I love baptism, and I tell you all the time, one of my favorite things to do, if not my favorite thing to do in ministry, is to baptize someone. I love it because it is such a joyful experience. When I get to sit down with people and talk to them about why they want to be baptized, their faces are glowing and they're so excited and they can't wait. And that phrase comes up so many times. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. And then when you see someone come out of the waters of baptism, there's such joy on their faces because they're overwhelmed with the fact that the God of the universe loved them so much that he saved them by grace alone and that they'll never be the same. And there's something so amazing and so passionate about someone who is new to the faith, someone who is following Jesus for the first time. There's such joy and excitement in the life of a new Christian. But then life keeps happening the way that life does. And those who have been spiritually made alive can often start looking like spiritual zombies. Yes, somewhere in the back of our minds, we believe that we've been made new and that we have this hope and that we have this assurance of eternity. But somewhere along the lines, we stop living like it. But in verse 37, Jesus goes back to an accusation made by the Sadducees where they mentioned Moses. He says, hey, guys, I'm glad you mentioned Moses. Let's talk about Moses. 
He says, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but the living. Jesus says, when Moses mentioned Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had been dead for generations. And yet God spoke to Moses and he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not in the past tense from when they were alive, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now, because when you follow after me, death is not the end, but I am the God of the living. And so he's speaking in this present tense, reminding the people that anyone who puts their faith in God and follows after him will be here forever. And the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he is your God as well. And he is not the God of the dead. And so if you are in Christ, you fall in that same family as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have been made alive in Christ and we should live like it. As followers of Jesus, we are not on a march to death, but we are on a pilgrimage to life. And the way we live reflects what we really believe about the words of Christ. Paul says that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we, Christians, should be pitied and mocked above all people because we believe in this thing that's never going to happen. But Christ has been raised from the dead. And because of that, it doesn't make sense to live like we are still dead ourselves. And if Christ is speaking truth here, we should live like we're alive, like we're here for the long haul. Like we really believe that we are children of God who have a living hope for new life and eternal life. Think about the lives of those who were given their life for Christ. The martyrs of our faith who were able to hold on to their belief in Christ, staring at the blade of a sword or standing on a pile waiting to be lit by fire or at the barrel of a gun who said, you know what? You can take my life, but you cannot take my life because my life extends beyond my last breath. And I have a hope that is greater than death. And they went to their graves clutching on to Christ, knowing that when they closed their eyes, they would open them with Jesus. And that's the kind of faith that we are called to have knowing that no matter what comes in this life, we can have joy that is inexpressible and we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding because no matter what may come, no matter what may happen in our lives, Jesus has promised us that we have an eternity that will make our trials seem like a breath in the wind. So where is your joy, Christian? Where is our peace? Are we showing our life to the world? And are we living like people who genuinely, passionately believe in the resurrection of the dead? Because Christ died, but Christ is risen, and Christ will come again to make all things new, including those who have put their faith in him. And so we need to believe that every single day, to ask God to give us faith when our faith is weak, to eradicate the doubts when they creep into our minds, and to help it not be in the back of our minds, but in the front of our minds and on the tip of our tongues at all times, speaking and living like people who have been raised again and declaring that hope into a broken and dying world. And even when we find ourselves knowing that our last breath is right around the corner, knowing that that is not the end. 
which is to be absent from the body, is to be present with Christ, and that one day he will take us all and bring us back to the place we should be and restore us, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And we will be with Christ for all of eternity as his sons and daughters. So let's live that way. And let's start today.